This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest this week is none other than the brilliant Katie Piper OBE. She is an author, an activist, presenter and model and all around incredible human being who I have had the chance to meet and who is just the loveliest person. So I'm so glad to have her on the show. Um, Katie, how are you doing? I'm good. I was trying to think when we were last together in real life and I think it was Women's Health Expo. Was it? Yeah, which was not the last one because I, I think the last one must have got cancelled because of COVID. So it yeah. must have been like two, three years ago. Oh my goodness. It, and it feels like, I think with COVID, that almost went just like that. So it feels to me like not that long ago when I last saw you. Yeah. And I suppose in a bad way, like I feel connected to lots of people because of Instagram. But yeah. the reality is I don't see them, but I sort of check in on them and I know what they're eating. I know what their routine <laughs> is. And I, I could so. tell you what outfit you wear to lose women every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like that on your page. And Nothing. Oh yeah, Alice is going for her walk. Oh, she's doing it. She's training. And I th- but then I think, oh, that's a bit bad because then you don't make an effort to connect with people properly. You know. I think it's definitely about doing a balance of the two, isn't it? Like I really feel that there are times when I check myself and go, oh my god, I haven't actually spoken to someone today. Like I've seen what people are doing, but I haven't actually spoken to someone, particularly during lockdown. But then also for me, I'm such a a weird introvert extrovert that too much social connection I'm like I need to retreat I'm tired <laughs> yeah you're the first person I've spoke to today like a prop you know I've spoke to people on email and like little mm. errands I've ran but in person proper conversation you're, you're the first person so. well I'm glad I have that honor and I'm very <laughs> excited now I wanted to start by just asking you how the last few years have been I mean since I last saw you so much has happened um, how have you sort of found the last few years and you know I we talk in a positive place I guess in COVID sense obviously there's other stuff going on in the world but um you know we're allowed to socialize we're allowed to see each other but it's definitely been a difficult few years for for everyone I think so how have you found it yeah I mean I think you're totally right with when you sort of look at the wider picture then all you can ever say is that you're safe and you're you're privileged but I just suppose as an individual how how it's felt is in the very first lockdown you know I'm a mum I've got two kids so in the very first lockdown I mean it's not funny but I remember (laughs) looking back now thinking oh my gosh if I go out the door to the co-op and buy some food I might bring a disease into the house that might make all the family drop dead in the front room. Mm. And and that was how kind of scary it was. And then once you got past the health scaring element of it, it was like, oh no, I don't have a career. I'm the breadwinner. How am I going to earn a living? What what should I retrain? What should I do? Mm. So, And I'm sure everybody shared those worries in, in different ways, in different yeah. capacities. So and then for me, there were lots of positives um, in that I do work quite a lot. And I always used to think that I was quite good at sort of 
like cause as a woman, like multitasking, doing everything, which I am on like a spreadsheet, you know, I am technically doing everything, but I didn't really quite have the relationship with my daughters that I thought I did because I physically made all the deadlines of bedtime, school concerts, mm. stuff like that. But like, I don't really think I was very present um, and as close to them as I thought I was. So lockdown gave me the chance to change that and, and it was difficult and now it's it's great and, and in a much better place. Yeah. And then now actually career-wise, I've found it's become a really busy, I say busy year, like starting last summer to now, if that's a year, I've been so busy because I think where everybody paused kind of works come back tenfold so yeah 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 you are doing <laughs> yeah you are doing so much and I'll never forget the time that I came to record your podcast with you and you just got off a motorbike into the podcast studio you were doing like two recordings back to back then you were back on the motorbike you were going over to do something else then you were going somewhere else and I remember <laughs> yeah. just being like oh my god this girl's worth ethic is like nothing else and it is incredibly inspiring but I think you're right I think lockdown and COVID gave us all a moment to just press pause and to almost have a bit of a retake a restock of where am I what do I want what matters to me and I think definitely human connection became so much more important to people than ever before so even you saying about connecting with your daughters I think for me it was more connecting with my parents you know suddenly I was worried about their health and their mm -hmm. you know you know their longevity and I and I just remember thinking oh okay I really need to make more of an effort to to connect with those people so yeah I think that's definitely a common thread and um, I wanted to start and and please feel free to stop me if it's not okay, but just asking a little bit about trauma and without reliving your own experience, you're someone who has overcome such a great deal of trauma and found life after it, which I think is, is just so incredible. And I'm definitely sure that you're still challenged by aspects of that trauma. I think anyone that experiences that, it will still challenge them in various different ways. But for the most part, you seem to have rebuilt a life that is full of joy and happiness. And I'd love to ask what you felt was sort of imperative to that recovery and I know that that's such a huge question but I would love to hear a little bit about that yeah I mean so for people that don't know when when I was younger when I was 24 I was badly burnt and um it sort of changed my life forever because the severity of the injuries meant that I was left blind in my left eye um sort of full thickness burns to my face a lot of reconstruction and actually probably one of my biggest injuries that people don't really see is I have a lot of um esophageal damage so I have a lot of gastro problems with swallowing with eating um which I get hospitalized quite a lot for and, and I never know when that's going to happen so it's quite disruptive mm. um and the way I was burnt was was through an act of male violence and uh, you know before that attack I was also raped and mm. and beaten so you know I, I did sort of leave those leave the hospital not just with the medical injuries but with PTSD as well so that has had been a really difficult time but I don't know I mean for me I think there's no good time for that to happen and I, I do think trauma is a part of everybody's life um, but I really believe it doesn't have to be a life sentence it doesn't have to be this thing that kind of hangs around our neck for the rest of our lives and I suppose you never ever feel like this at the time. And hindsight isn't really helpful to anybody um, apart from the people giving it because they're in the sort of later part of their own recovery. But I suppose the hindsight for me is that with great pain has to come great strength, which isn't a choice. You just yeah. have to develop great strength. And when you develop great strength, you then develop great resilience. And I think with great resilience, you find a great purpose. So I always think, well, 
the one thing everyone has in common, no matter what their background is or, or what they're sort of seeking in life, is everybody seeks purpose, mm. uh, purpose, fulfillment, whatever you want to call it. And we seek it in different ways until we get it right. And we all ask that question, like, what am I doing? What's the point of my life anyway? Like, why am I here? Who am I? And I found that out really, really young, you know, like 24, 25 which has really helped me in my 30s. I'm, I'm coming into my 40s. I'm going to be 40 next year. You're not. Yeah, so oh I'm my old. God. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but, I mean, I always joke, I'm, I'm going to be 40 next year, but my face is only 14 years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't know, I don't think I'm ever going to change my appearance because, you know, my face is completely reconstructed. So it mm. won't actually age in a mm. traditional sense. And I'm very similar build to you. You know, we're same build, same height. So Tiny. I basically, yeah, I basically still look 12 from the back (laughs) you know um but yeah so I think that that kind of like direction and understanding of why I'm Mm. here because I nearly wasn't here you know and going back to that thing of being busy it definitely is a coping mechanism for me but it definitely stems from um nearly dying you know and also being on bed rest for such a long time, being incapacitated mm. and sort of making those promises your, to yourself to, to live life to the full because knowing it could really change tomorrow because sort of having a, being born with a disability or, or, or having a disability through a sort of degenerative disease is slightly different from something that impacts you suddenly mm. without any warning and it gives you an urgency in life that I think has the ability to make you really successful and ambitious but then it can be such a hindrance because it, it's really good in business, but it's not so good in personal life and family life, you know. But I don't, I don't really think you can have it all. I think you have to be like prosper in one and be really un- unhappy and crap in the other. <laughs> yeah, I think some of what you said there is just amazing. And I completely agree with, you know, sometimes things can stop us in our tracks and you do have to then say, what What am I here? You know, it, it gives you that question of life. What am I here for? What's my purpose? Uh, and I think so many people sort of have, have had those moments where they sort of have to rethink and, and overhaul what they're doing and have a, a, you know, a kind of refocus of where they're at. Um, but I think that one of the things that I find is, is really difficult, I guess, for some people with, with trauma is not letting it define them, not letting it become them. And I think you're someone who's really progressed in a way that this is a part of you but it's not all of you you are someone who's gone on to do so many other incredible things and whilst that will always be there and it's always a part of you and I think the way that you shared that at the start was so incredible it's not all of you yeah it's difficult because I have sort of two separate lives because I have um my sort of normal private life and I don't really have like celebrity friends I don't go out to like if I go to events it's it's for work and it's either around a project I've worked on or someone I'm close to that's worked on you know it there's a sort of point to going to it yeah so I don't sort of go to lots of like cool nightclubs like I'm not a very cool person Um, you and me both don't worry (laughs) and I you know I so my normal life is like tracksuits being a mom taking the kids to swimming lessons taking the bins out that kind of stuff um and then my work you know my career started because I was in the news I was a news story as a victim of Mm. an attack and then from that, I went into more of a sort of self-help world with writing documentaries mm. and it stemmed from there. So it is a career built on the notoriety of being a victim of an acid attack. So it still is the focus for lots of people in my career. But if you came into my 
private life with my friends and my family, we never raise it ever. We never discuss it, like Mm. absolutely never, ever. I don't talk about it. I don't think about it. So it definitely doesn't define me. Um, And it's funny, I forget that I look different because nobody treats me different in my life. And especially in the lockdown, I didn't see anyone. So then when we unlocked and I went back out and then sort of people sort of look at you or second, whatever, I was, I forgot about all that. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. It's been so long, you know, mm. so it's kind of strange in that way. Mm. Do you find that dealing with the emotions, I mean, you mentioned there the word victim. Do you find that dealing with the emotions of that was difficult you know because like, I remember feelings of anger and resentment and shame and guilt and I wondered if you found yourself feeling that and allowing allowing yourself to feel those feelings I think which is really important it's funny because when I look back on it now it was nearly 15 years ago so it was 2008 the culture was so different like so mm. different for women there was no such thing as me too time's up there was no Instagram I think there was Twitter and um, MySpace and I don't know if there was Twitter, actually. I don't think there was. No, there wasn't Twitter until a few years later. So lots of things that I thought were my fault or that I did wrong stayed with me for a while until the culture changed. And then people started to talk about things and you would see yourself within what they were saying. And mm. you'd say, oh, that's happened to me before. Or I've wrongly felt like that. But the thing is, there was such an extensive medical recovery of my journey. I didn't really have time to dwell on it. And there was such an extensive legal trial that lasted over a year. I had to have a retrial because one of the trials collapsed, you know. So I never had time to not not worry about those things, but, you know, you'd think everything's better and then you'd have an esophageal operation and they'd split your esophagus and that air would leak into your heart and your lungs and you got emphysema and you think, oh my God, I'm going to die after surviving mm. all that other stuff. Mm. You'd start to get stem cell infections and you think I'm going to lose the sight in my other eye. Mm. So there was, I mean, my mum was like sort of my, chaperone of everything there was always so much physical stuff going on in the forefront that mm. a lot of other things I never really had time like when I look back on it now I can't believe it all happened and I suppose in a way some of this stuff was a distraction but it was still a horrible distraction as well yeah god you yeah know? Yeah. yeah, definitely. You mentioned your mum there. And I know a lot of us got an insight into your life to start with, with the documentary that you made, which was, you know, I remember watching it and the, the brave, you know, decision that you made to open your doors and to share that was was incredible. And I remember your family being so amazing on that, particularly your mom and your sister. And I wondered how it felt to, you know, you were someone who'd left home, you had this kind of independent life, you'd moved to London to then be back at home and to to learn to ask for help. And I think it was a, a kind of a learning that I wanted to bring into, I guess, right now is that I think a lot of us find it difficult to ask for help. It's always the thing that kind of, you know, people struggle with. But how did you find yourself having to lean on other people and actually having to give in to, to asking for help? Yeah, it's interesting because we've always, I've always been really fortunate that I've got a great family. Like I've had a really like textbook, stable, normal childhood and, and all the support and, and opportunity from my parents that people dream of. You know, they support, my mum's a teacher. She helped me all through my education. Um, would sit there and do homework with me. You know, I, I couldn't ask for, for a better start in life. But I was not the teenager. I'm not the woman I am now is not the teenager I was. You know, I was like very problematic. I moved out at 19. You know, I was going to auditions. I was living in a rented bedroom. I was like very uh, ambitious, focused, selfish, stubborn. Um, all qualities that actually helped me in my recovery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite thick-skinned. Um, 
So our relationship wasn't what you see like in the documentary all those mm. years. So, so when I went back home, again, it's only the severity of the injury that made me surrender because when I went back home, I didn't have sight in my left eye at all and my sight was damaged in my right eye. So actual physical problems, you know, like I couldn't find clothes in the wardrobe. I couldn't get things. I couldn't see in the dark. I couldn't get out of the bed at night. I had a feeding peg into my stomach for two years and a drip that I had to wire up and carry around. So I needed help like getting transporting to places. Mm. I needed four hours, one hour a day, four times a day of face care, physio, mm. and loads of things that I couldn't physically do that I needed two carers to do. Mm. So my mum came on compassionate leave and signed up as an official carer. And then my dad was a part-time carer for me. So there were lots of things that it wasn't, you know, dignity rise. It wasn't great. But if I'd refused the help, I, I wouldn't have survived or we would have had yeah. to have other carers you know, come into the home and I, and mm. I didn't trust anybody. So I wouldn't have wanted, you know, like external people to have come in our house, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I think that, um, community is something that you have built, like that leaning on other people is something that you've built with your charity. And I think that it's obviously a huge part of, of what you try and do now is provide other people with that support, that togetherness and that feeling of, of not being alone. What gave you the motivation to, to start the charity and sort of how did, going from an idea become what it is now, which is an incredibly successful organization. Yeah, I think you kind of summed it up when you said about community, because I suppose with a facial disfigurement, the biggest problem society thinks is that you don't look like what society dictates as attractive. But that isn't really the biggest problem. The biggest problem is feeling like you're the only one that looks this way mm. and that you'll never reconnect with anyone and you're isolated and you're not like, you know, we, we're meant to be like others. And mm. I, and I know some people don't like that fact, but we are, we're meant to be in tribes. We're meant to see ourselves in one another. And even just not seeing yourself in your own parents is painful. You know, when you used to have the same nose, same features. So I thought, it can't be only me and just these military heroes. Like that's all I could find, like soldiers that had been burnt in the line of duty by shrapnel bombs. And I couldn't relate to them. So I had really bad insomnia and I would stay up at night um, on my mum's PC, just like Googling stuff. And all I ever found was American burn survivors because obviously with America being such a big country, there were different states where they'd have different forums, different charities. But all the forums, they were really weird. People's usernames, like not always, but often would be the percent they were burnt. So like Dan, 96% burns and Fifi, 72% explosion and stuff like that. Mm. And I was just like, wow, God, I can't, oh my God, what do I call myself? Katie Acid, 22%. Like, <laughs> this is really weird. <laughs> um, and like my, my, my email at the time in my 20s was like Blondie22. Like, oh my God, let's not go what our first email address were. <laughs> Mine was horrific. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on the forum, it was just a competition of whose life was worse. It was just mm. like, I'm more burnt than you. I've lost more than you. Mine was a house fire. My house got burnt to the ground. I don't have my home anymore. At least you have your home. And I was just like, this is <sighs> really terrible and making me feel worse. Yeah. Um, so then I was like trying to connect with people in the UK and it would just be uh, caregivers and parents trying to connect children with birthmarks and facial disfigurements together. There was just nothing for people that still felt like 
they wanted to be the CEO. They wanted to have sex. They wanted to date. Like I just couldn't find it. I could only mm. find stuff for children or adults that were really, really unhappy. Yeah. Um, and then in the background, I was having this care. I was traveling to France and I had a specialist funding through the PCT, which is, you know, primary care trust. It's part of the NHS. And it was life-changing and all the band survivors are seeing in the waiting rooms in France had much better results than in the UK. So of course they were burnt, they were scarred, but they look like I look now where it's still, you know, some kind of symmetry. It's still, rep it's still a, quite a replica of a, a regular face that's animated and, and moves. And, you know, when you see a burn survivor in this country, they all look the same facial burns because it's like the same technique and you end up with the same sort of, um, contractions and the same problems and I thought god why is there such a big difference like aesthetically and functionally and and then in their mental health because you know they're restoring yeah. more normality so mm. there's less dependency problems on substance abuse there's less self-harm depression these people are talking about setting up businesses returning to work getting married like I'm not seeing that in the UK so and also I'd had this documentary and we're from a really small village, right? So everyone recognized our mum and dad's house and they were putting like 10 pound notes and checks to my mum and dad's door because mm -hmm. they'd seen the documentary. So my mum and dad were like confiscating every bit of money that came through the door. <laughs> and they were like, you're on disability benefit and incapacity benefit and it's illegal for you to take that money and your treatment's paid for by the NHS. So we started to save money. And then because the story never left and because I wrote mm. books and things like that. The money carried on coming. So we just made a charitable status account at HSBC and we were like, we'll just send people to France. If there's big burn injuries, we'll give them that money. They can go to France and have that treatment. Mm. And then it just like the, the more sort of recovery I made, I just began formalizing it and meeting more connections at like award ceremonies, things like that. I'm realizing I could do so much more. And my my only kind of qualification was as a beauty therapist. So in the beginning, I just kind of naively set up workshops. I started doing people's makeup, treatments, nails, but only if you're burnt. You could only come to my workshops if you're burnt. And then I moved out. I, I got a flat. And then I'd like invite people to sleep at my house and have like <laughs> pizza. <laughs> like totally against charity commission guidelines, not good safeguarding, not good boundaries, not really allowed. Um, but I, I was single too. And but that I was, was you, you finding know. your people, wasn't it? That was you yeah. connecting. I mean, it wasn't professional and I was lonely too. And then, you know, things got more and more professional and then it really grew and surgeons mm. and lawyers and people came on the board as trustees. And then, you know, I think the charity is about 12 years old now and we now have built that centre here in this country. We don't have to refer patients out of the NHS. We get our referrals from burn units. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember ringing my sister. My sister's a corporate PA and I said, oh my God, I've got a trustee meeting. They're all in the boardroom. I'm trying to get all the notes together I, and the stapler's run out. I don't have to load a stapler. I've never worked in an office my whole life. My sister was like, you don't know how to load a stapler. I was like, no. I was like, they just fall <laughs> out. And, I, and then she had to like tell me on the phone how to do it. And I was the CEO of the company. You know, I mean, I just... trained as a dancer, so staplers yeah. will go, be, go beyond me as well. So don't worry. They're a nightmare. <laughs> I know. I know. Any sort of stationery. I think that that sense of community and that willingness for you to give back is feeds back into that purpose it feeds yeah. back into you finding that purpose and I think that it's it's so inspiring to see that that loop of um of give back I think that all of us in our lives I think we find purpose in giving in some way I think there are some people who just love to give and I think it seems as though that's instilled in you even you know regardless of what happened to you but I think that 
you know, because of your trauma, um, almost tenfold that that willingness to sort of help others and to bring others into your space and, and help them is amazing. Do you know what, right? This is so this is gonna sound so selfish. I don't even see it as giving back because the more people I connect with through the charity and help in their recovery or even outside the charity, if it was other stories of trauma that aren't burns on podcasts, yeah. books, whatever it is, the more I make my life easier. Because the more visibility these people have and the better mm. recovery they have, the more the public are going to see them and be like, this is a normal part of life. We don't have to feel scared of people like that. We don't have to feel repelled. We, they are attractive. They are normal people. So it always yeah. helps me too, you know. A hundred percent. And I think that um, another place that I wanted to take it was actually the charity doesn't just exist in bricks and mortar. It's also online and the online space, you know, when you started talking, you said that Instagram didn't exist, that Twitter was, was not even there. And now there's this whole opportunity to connect with people on a, on a different level. And I wondered how social media has, I guess, not only helped the charity, but helped yourself as well. I heard you speak on another podcast about all the positive benefits of social media, which right now we don't tend to hear much about. We tend to hear about all the bad stuff, but there is really good stuff there as well. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Yeah, you're right. It's so, so, so good. I'm a massive fan of social media. Like 99% of it, I believe, is is positive. And the 1% is down to personal responsibility. It's the user's responsibility. Um, so, you know, obviously things like fundraising for the charity and profile raising has been great. But just for me personally, like I've made friends of girls in like Australia, America, um, who, because it's hard to find people um, that have had what's happened to me happen. Like a lot of the people I connect with are in accidents, some mm. self-harm, and then a small minority is violence. Mm. So I've been able to connect with girls whose boyfriends have attacked them too and burnt them. Mm. And I've been able to have like 1 a.m. chats with them on DM mm. that I know they'd never share with anybody else. Like, So I, I feel like that's really powerful. And also it's really like nice to have also a bit of a boundary and a distance it's not like going for coffee with them and it's not like you yeah. have to bump into them in person and, and sometimes that's really nice and I think because you are so much in the driving seat you know I've over the last few years really created my feed where if I notice that I'm jealous of people or they make me feel inadequate I just if I, I haven't got the guts to unfollow I've just muted those people now so I only see like good stuff and good stuff yeah. that helps me and sometimes stuff that inspires me um, with business that gives me ideas that I wouldn't have had because when you work alone you don't have any colleagues that give you creative ideas you don't have many face-to-face -face lunches and board meetings so mm. sometimes social media is your sort of um mentor and your inspiration mm. you know and you can replicate what other people are doing and make it your own as well so yeah there's so many good points to it I think yeah definitely I think one of the things that I heard you speak about which actually I guess stems from the social media side of things is having to rethink the concept of beauty and you touched on it there um with you know how we perceive burns victims how we look at people and we don't sort of stares the right word but you sort of you accept the, the the normalcy of that rather than seeing it as abnormal do you think that we need to do more to increase the amount of diversity. I mean, I do think we've come on a long way. I mean, since I started working in this industry, we've come a long way in terms of diversity and showing disability and showing um, just different types of people in the media and online. But do you think more needs to be done in this area and particularly for, for those who have experienced burns? It's the best it's ever been. I mean, mm. no doubt. Like I remember when I was burnt, I was like, oh God, well, I can't 
have anything online because I don't have a normal face. So I just can't participate. So I actually didn't even have a phone for a long time. And then when social media started, I was like, oh, what should I do? Should I put up a photo of my old face? Because I had an old Facebook from when I was Mm. at my clubbing days. And that still sort of sat there unused. And normally what a lot of burnt and just disabled people would normally do is have like nature, like a flower or an animal or their pet or something like that. Um, And that's, that's not the case for everyone anymore and I've had my times where I felt really down and and thought oh I don't look anything like these people I I can't post a close-up picture and it's only really my hair and makeup people like gay guys that have said to me you do know it's not just photoshop and edit these people use you do know there's whole apps like let me show you something let me show you and like the app transport like even give someone like a wig and like all these things you can always (laughs) trust the hair and makeup to come in with those tips (laughs) I knew I knew about Facetune. Obviously, I knew that, but I didn't know about like entire apps and stuff like that. Oh, so I was God, just like, yeah. "Yeah, I was like, okay, all right. Look, nobody looks like this." And I, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, where mm. you actually go to events, you meet people, and you're like, "Oh my God, that's that girl! I wouldn't even recognize her in real life. She looks nothing like her pictures." Katie, so that- I'm saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> literally honestly it literally happens to me where I'm chatting to someone and I, I already follow them online I've yeah. not even clocked that they're that person oh, so I'm no. like oh god okay and I don't know if other people feel like this the facial disfigurement but for us well for me it's the reverse where I like to present worse almost online especially when I'm mm. single because mm. it's really hard when you're single if people buy into something and then meet you and they're let down. That's like mm-hmm. more painful. That's harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps me to put it out there more mm-hmm. and the reality so that when people do meet me and they always say it to me and it's, and it's so rude, but they don't mean it rudely. They're like, Oh, you look so much better in real life. And I'm like, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> oh my <laughs> um, God. <laughs> but they don't mean it like that. But I, I sort of like to show that because I, I think it's worse doing it the other way but I know it's hard for people I I do understand why people use apps and I do understand why people photoshop yeah look it's it's such a wider con like conversation is it about just what we accept as the way we look and what is socially acceptable and the trends that come and go in the beauty industry and I think that you know for me it's actually a sad reality that a lot of us are hiding ourselves from the reality of what we actually look like. We're ashamed. We we become uh, so convinced that the the filter that we put on is actually better than our actual face, and then we try and you know achieve that face by either you know uh, plastic surgery or, or other methods. And I think that actually, you know, one of the rules that I made for myself on social media was I don't I don't use filters because I would hate for anyone to meet me in real life and for them to think look at me and think oh God, she looks nothing like that online. What a letdown. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) But I just think that um, we're also setting ourselves up to fail if we're always putting across this image of perfection and and of looking a certain way. Yeah. When the reality doesn't match that. I would never want to critic, because I do use filters, right? So when I go on my stories, say I'm doing my affirmation at half eight, right? So I've I've probably got up about seven, sorted the kids out to them to school, run back to eat and start work. And I look like a bag of shit. And I'm like, and it's not, it's not to do with being burnt. It's to do with looking tired or it's to do with um, just not looking aesthetically pleasing in the way I want to. So I will mm. put a filter on instead of doing my makeup, I'll do my mm-hmm. affirmation. And I still think we don't talk about this in a, in a male sense. We talk about it as women. So yeah. you're, it's still going back to like, um, like, berating women around appearance, whether it's yeah. looking good or looking bad, you know, and 
unfortunately for women, it's still such a high value how they look. And a lot of people make a living off how they look, which isn't necessarily wrong. But Mm. for men, it's not true because the value isn't placed on how men look. Like they can make money in other ways. And that's unfortunately not always the case for women. So it's hard out there, I think, whatever camp you sit in. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I actually think you're absolutely right. I think that, that where I tend to draw the line is if it alters your face shape, I think that that's, I guess, slightly different. I am all for, if you want to put a bit of a grain on, if you put, you know, that, of course, like, you know, we all have to do whatever makes us feel our best. And look, I would never say to someone, don't do that. I think the only time I I think, oh gosh, this is a bit of a gray area is if it's, you know, completely altering your face shape and, and putting across this kind of visual of something that is very far from what you actually are. Um, I'm sure that's not something that you do, but I completely agree with you in that, you know, that's me again, policing how women should, should go through their lives. And, and that's the, the internalized misogyny that I guess I have to undo and unlearn and I'm still working on that. And I think that it is really important that, you know, this whole conversation is actually quite a new one. Mm We, we've never really spoken about this before. It was always just, you tell women how to look, you tell women how to exercise, Mm -hmm. you tell women how to be And actually, you know, when I think about my experience growing up and the beauty standards that were presented, I had a huge amount of privilege and yet I still never felt enough. You know, I was white, blonde, slim, and yet I still didn't feel beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe some of that is because I'm just still working through some of that stuff. And I think that it's difficult. Do you think it's being a dancer that, because a lot of my my friends that I lived with are dancers and it's just so savage. You know, I think there's so much to be discovered about the impact that that industry has. Mm. I look, I love musical theater, I love dancing, I love all of that and and the the memories that I have from that time of my life are amazing, but they are tinged with so much um toxic stuff, yeah. you know, yeah, like the way to look. And also like we we were we were treated as a monolith and I think that's how beauty was for such a long time it was you know if you went to a certain class you had to wear a red lipstick if you went Mm -hmm. to this class you had to dress in a certain way rather than allowing ourselves just to be individuals oh it's such a huge conversation isn't it like I think we could go on for ages about beauty but actually I just wanted to take it to now how you speak to your daughters about beauty Mm -hmm. I think that as a mum to girls, particularly at the moment, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of worry about girls growing up online and the impact that that has on them. And of course, again, that's, you know, it annoys me that that's the case because I don't think boys have the same issue. But, you know, as a mother of girls, how do you find yourself navigating those conversations? Are they aware of their appearance yet? Do they talk about those things? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, my husband is mixed race. Um, so the girls are um, part Jamaican and they're, they're quite they're quite dark for mixed race in that they're the same color as Richie. You know, usually they would be sort of lighter than, than the mixed race parent. And um, the eldest, she often wears her hair in dreads or in braids. She's got like long sort of jet black hair. Um, the youngest has got like sort of fairer brownie blonde hair but it's like a really tight afro Mm. um so there's that difference in like I they don't have the same appearance as me as being white and blonde but they don't look like me how I look now because my face is obviously created by plastic surgery but they do look like me as a toddler so they have my the nose I don't even have anymore they have my old nose they have my old lips um you know, I've always had quite a big forehead and I had a different hairline and my daughter's got that. So it's interesting. There's been conversations around 
wanting to look like Elsa, you know, who's blonde, white skin, Scandinavian, mm. um, and them thinking that I look like Elsa. My children never noticed I was burnt, like for years. Like it mm. took them years and years to notice I was burnt. And it wasn't until really like socializing with other children at school and meeting other parents. And then my eldest kind of saying to me, can you believe that no one's mum has any burns at all? <laughs> and I was like, yes, Gosh. I can believe that because it's, that's like the, I'm the minority. And she was like, oh, really? Oh gosh, right. But then also she says other things, which is like really difficult to navigate through asking why people's mums look pregnant and they're not pregnant, you know, because it's all observational and it's yeah. all, she just bases on what she sees me and Richie as, as normal for all parents, you know, mm. why are both parents white? She asks that, you know, so we, there's lots of conversations come up around that. I mean, I'm quite a strict parent with them. They're not allowed, like the eldest is going to be eight and she wants to be an online, like a lot of her friends in her class, they game online on these things on like Roblox, stuff like that. She's not allowed to be in the online gaming world at all. And that's like a big thing for her. She She's already like made a username. She wants to use slush puppy one. I'm like, no, nope, slush puppy one. No, it's not happening. That's um, their version of our email addresses. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and she wants to do YouTube. Um, so we find ways around it. We've made like a fake YouTube where she just films on an iPad herself and like my her grandparents watch it. They're her only viewers. Mm, um, and so, <laughs> so stuff cute. Like that. Yeah. And it, and you know, even she's like, why don't you put, why can't I be on your Instagram? Why don't you show my face? You know, so she is at that age, whereas if the youngest one isn't at all, but yeah, I'm very strict and, and boundary with them. And that's, I'm not, not going to sort of back down on that. So do you think you'll let them have Instagram and all that when they get older? Um, never until the legal age I think I think it's 13 the legal age mm. um mm. so I, never until that and it, you know I really don't want them to at all but I, I suppose they will have to because they'll be left out of stuff in their peer groups if they're not and then they'll be mm. bullied but it would just have to be like so closely supervised and I, I would have it on my phone as well I mean like she has a she has a tablet she does her homework on but it goes back in the drawer, like in my bedroom and I have the password and stuff. She doesn't get to like keep it in her room or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. So they just think that's normal. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that like, you know, as long as they're going along with it, great. Because I think that it's something that I definitely think about. I mean, I obviously don't have children yet myself, but I do think that it's a, just a different world that kids are growing up in. And it's it's one that's ever, ever increasingly difficult to navigate because, you know, rather than coming home and that being home family time, they're still online yeah. and you know still doing all the things and, and obviously I'm sure that looking at you on Instagram and being like oh I want to do that because it looks like something that's aspirational and fun yeah. and I do get it but I think that it does pose a really tricky point particularly in that you know that age 13 to sort of 16 17 that's so difficult to navigate anyway as a girl that you know that you then throw into that Instagram and TikTok and all these things as well I just think it must be really challenging as a parent to work out what to do. And I think I'm going to have to address it each year because I'm not going yeah. to have to have it my way forever, you know, and I think each year I'm going to have to approach it with her and let, let her have a bit more freedom each time. I mean, the good thing is she's like really sporty. So she like runs for the school, like she's really into all her training and that's kind of like, I feel like a really healthy path for her to go down. Um, so I just hope that that will be like a, a good distraction and all her focus. But yeah, I, I think we're just going to have to like muddle our way through it and I'm going to hate every second. So. <laughs> I'll come back in a few years and ask you how it's going. <laughs> now, Katie, you seem like such a yes person. You know, I referenced earlier in our chat that you um, were just so busy last time I saw you. And I do think it's such a positive thing. And you did say earlier how 
you know, being busy is almost a bit of a coping mechanism. Yeah. But it, and this at the same time, something that really keeps you going and gives you that purpose. But how do you decide what to commit to? And how do you create boundaries so that you don't go that little bit too far? You know, I just actually joined you from a Zoom. I was presenting in a, an event um, uh, this morning. And one of the questions was really, how do I set those boundaries so that I don't just keep burning out? And I think it's something all of us are really trying to, to navigate. It's hard. Um, yeah. But how do you find yourself doing that? It is hard because um, it is, I feel like it's a, another female thing because when you're called selfless as a woman, it's like a compliment. Mm. But I do think being selfless just means being a bit downtrodden and just putting yourself last, you know, but it's sort of like celebrated. And if you were the opposite, you'd be seen as a bit like, oh, she's a bit ruthless. She's mm. a bit mean, you know, mm. she won't help you out. Um, but for me, it's very boring and very unromantic, but I am like super militant and have like an online diary that is synced with like all the different people that I work with across my management, across charity, uh, synced with my husband <laughs> and everything is like diarized for, to like seconds and minutes. And then like, so diarizing breaks of food, diarizing travel time, I diarize in <laughs> research time. When you say seconds and minutes, you put 30 seconds for a wee. <laughs> And it's so sad, isn't it? But it, it, but again, if you're like self-employed, really, your time you is your money. Be. Yeah, yeah you and, and if be. you sort of want to be like like for me, we don't have a nanny, so I do a lot of domestic and sort of childcare-led stuff as well. So you can't just leave your kids waiting at the school gates, you know. And mm. and in that is loads of other stuff, like because my daughter's quite heavily involved in sport. At the top of my diary, it's like don't forget hockey stick, also men mm. hockey stick. Don't forget a uh, match, so can't wear away kit, must wear home kit, and all these other things as well with all, all my work. So yeah, it's just about being super super organised um, and putting in things like going for a walk, going to have reflexology and not mm. thinking like, oh, that's a treat because it, it isn't a treat. And I, I think it only for me came with age because I found it really hard to say no to people or cancel or let people down and people would get annoyed with me and it's realizing they didn't have my best interests at heart. The smaller the circle, the easier it is to say to somebody, I've taken on too much, I can't come. And that person's yeah. like, oh good, me too. So glad you've canceled, <laughs> you know? No, definitely. And I hate to use the phrase because I actually find it a bit cheesy, but do you ever get sort of that feeling of a bit of mum guilt because you are the breadwinner, because you're going out and you're trying to, I guess, juggle both roles and, and give them equal weight? I know that the only reason why I ask, I get a lot of messages from women who say that they feel that. They are trying to exercise. They're trying to um, eat well, do the kids, do the job, try and do everything. And they do end up just feeling a bit of like, oh God, I'm not doing anything to the best of my ability. Yeah, I do you know what, and this is not going to make me popular, but I, no, I don't. I don't at all because I know that if I don't exercise, it will affect my mental health. I'll get depressed, yeah. I'll get anxious, I'll have too much energy. So mm. it's like a non-negotiable for me. Like I have mm. to do my training it, just at least minimal twice a week. You know, it's not mm. even a big commitment. But I, I, if I could, I'd love to train five, six days a week, but I can't really anymore. Like those days have gone, you know, and mm. I just accept that. Um, and I, that's something I really, you know, I relate to a lot of things you post, but when I see you posting pictures of when you used to compete and when you were really strict of diet and training to how you are now, like 
I'm very similar to you. I'm similar physique to you. I used to be really lean like that. And I had no boyfriend, no kids. I wasn't successful in my work either. Yeah. And that was my sort of thing I dedicated my time to. And now, you know, I sit at nine stone, five foot two. I'm a bit spongier. I wear a size eight. It's still tiny, you know, but, and I'm actually, it's more manageable and I don't feel disappointed all the time, you know, so it's accepting those things, you know. Definitely. And do you think as well that I know that a lot of my stuff was about control coming out of my experience with with domestic abuse I lost all control and I wanted to regain control and control for me didn't come in any other form but controlling my food controlling my exercise and it gave me that okay this is my control and I actually think learning to relinquish that control and that everything's going to be okay if you're not you know sitting at exactly the same weight every day and that if you're not eating exactly this amount of calories every day things are going to be okay. I do think that was definitely, definitely part of it for me. Yeah. I mean, for me, because after my injuries, I couldn't eat solids for two years. So I had this moment of like, I spent my twenties, like wishing I could be thinner. And now I just would love to swallow a glass Mm. of water Mm. and not have an NG tube, not have a peg, you know, Mm. not have constant bad breath, like infections on my tongue. Like it was just awful. Like the orthodontic damage it made, like, so yeah. really, I I never, like after that experience, like for me, I always eat healthy, I always eat good food, always eat fresh food, because I know how important it is like to my yeah. ongoing recovery, my eyesight. But I mean, going back to that question of like feeling guilty, uh, what I always do is I want to excel in an area. So I let go of the other areas. So like today I had lots to do. And then when I knew I was talking to you at two, I thought I'm not going to run around like tidying up the house to talk to you because you can only see that bit, you know? <laughs> so the whole yeah. house is like a shithole, but I don't care. Like it's not my role as a woman to tidy the house top to bottom today. No. You know, I don't have to do that. So yeah. And, and, and it's just like sometimes things suffer and other things I do really well at but just never trying to do it all because there's no one else Mm. that tries to do it all apart from women I don't know why I completely agree yeah it's like a it's like a thankless task anyway and Mm. it's just pointless it doesn't it's not possible anyway Mm. yeah definitely Katie we've chatted about so much I'm going to ask you a huge question now but you have achieved so much already um but what would you say is your most valuable lesson that you've learned thus far like what would you say is the thing that really sticks with you it could be something someone said to you that you sort of really remember as being a valuable lesson I suppose it's sort of about power and like that's one of the tools that gets used against you power especially again as a as a woman and it's something you can fear when someone's more powerful than you and you you want to be more powerful but really like I remember like self-help in the early days and there were those books like the power in you the power of you and I used to think oh, what does that even mean like that's obviously written by somebody who's rich anyway and happy and and like really kind of like tapping into understanding your like power your femininity like all, all the ways that you can project things and be influential and, and, and such a powerhouse as a woman was really quite a turning point in my own life um and it helped me let go of what I thought should have happened in my life and live in what was actually happening. And that mm. was quite an em- empowering thing for me to be able to do. Um, and I think also 
in that letting go, you know, you talked about control. We're never in control of anything in life apart from within. So what we project to the world, our inner dialogue, how we speak, our our thoughts, like everything, how we present, like everything we want to put out to the world, that's the only thing within our control and in, and in our power. And I began to feel like really, really powerful. I began to feel like really indestructible and sort of like going back to the basics of, well, why didn't what happened to me? Why didn't they just kill me, like shoot me or stab me or something? Like, why did they throw acid at me? And it is a very personal attack and injury to leave somebody a shell of their former self, but mm. torture them so much that they won't die. And that and that it's a prolonged. You know, when people talk about the death penalty, some people are anti-death penalty because they want perpetrators to have prolonged suffering. And yeah. I think in that kind of attack, it is to try and prolong the suffering of the victim. So, you know, for me, I was just like, actually, this whole recovery, this whole enlightenment for me is nobody can take you out of the game except for you. Because ultimately, like man, and I don't mean men as gender, I mean the human race man, like you can touch somebody all over, but you can never, ever own another, like your spirit, your soul, your mind, like all of these are yours and they remain forever untouchable until you allow it any other way. And I always thought like I was out of the game, like that was it. I couldn't be part of like 20 year olds world anymore. I couldn't date, I couldn't get a job, but that was all like my image problems. That was all my preconceptions, my low self-esteem. And it, I, it was always up to me. And I think that was the biggest part of the recovery, realizing it was always up to me and I was still in the game um, and that I was so powerful. And I think that is my answer to what true confidence is. That's how I feel confident. It's never dictated. Like I feel fancy when I look nice and I feel sexy when I dress up, but I always feel confident all the time, no matter how I look or what I'm doing. That is probably one of the best answers I've ever heard. <laughs> it's such and a long answer, isn't it? <laughs> no, you just gave me goosebumps all over. And really like you are, you are incredible, Katie. I'm so happy to have you on. Um, and I think that actually, um, every point you've just said there is almost stuff that I've needed to hear for a little bit. Like the, you know, like one of the things that I've, I, I hate to use the word struggle because it's not a struggle, but I found challenging is trolling. And yeah. actually that, that piece of advice can be related to that in so many ways. And that unless you give someone the power to affect it you. Can't, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. can't penetrate because it, and I, and I know it's all like the cliche stuff of it being a reflection of them. And, but it, I think it does anger people seeing them do what they want to do, but they just can't do it. And I don't, mm. and I don't mean because of resources. I mean, because they're not prepared to put themselves out there for criticism. They're not prepared mm. to take a risk. They're not prepared mm. to work hard or whatever it is. Like it, it, it ignites something in somebody that, that tells them something about themselves and that is too painful to sit with. So they must project the pain project. to you. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, what does the future hold for you? Oh my <laughs> God, what a massive question. Can you tell us any secrets about what you've got coming up? I know you've got a couple of more, couple more books coming out. My publishing career for me um, has been something I really enjoyed because I wasn't really academic at school. Um, I enjoyed English. I, I did get a, a B in English and English Lit, but I didn't go on to do like A-levels or a degree or anything like that. Um, and it's been a great way to communicate with people. Um, so I love that. And I, you know, but then I love TV presenting because I think in, in, in like books, you go back with the editor and you change stuff and you perfect it. And then you get other people's input as well. 
And so it's never really as raw and as authentic, I don't think, because there's been so many drafts until you get to the saleable kind of document. But I think when you do telly, especially live telly, that is people really seeing you and connecting with you. And I think with documentaries, when you have contributors, they're not kind of people seeking to build a career or a profile. Mm. They're just showing their lives. So I, I find that quite interesting, like all through my life, even before I had this career, I was always like nosy. I was always a people person, possibly a bit of a gossip as well. <laughs> um, I do recognize that flaw in myself. So like kind of that kind of telly where it's not necessarily entertainment, but more like investigative and documentary mm. led. I've always loved because that, that kind of fulfills that, that need for me really. Yeah, and, completely. You know, what I've always seeked. So yeah. And it's funny, if you ask me a question like, 18 months ago, like, where do you see your career going? What's on your tick list? I had actually just taken on before COVID an American agent and I had some jobs out in America and I had some other plans out there with a production company and I was going to be going backwards and forwards to America um, and I was going to have to possibly get a nanny to help me with the children and maybe bring the children out for like the whole summer holidays, things like that. And I was really looking to put that into action right mm. and then obviously COVID happened so I paused it and then what changed for me in COVID with what I said about prioritizing my family a bit more made me realize why why do I need to be famous in America what will that do for me you know like we have a really nice house um we've got really good health um we've got enough we're not we're not super loaded rich but we're very comfortable we're very fortunate so it won't really like change anything in our life we're not going to go on mm. any more holidays than like the one or two holidays a year we go on um so I just stopped all that and I I actually didn't take it any further and I just thought I just want to try and stay consistent in all my relationships in my marriage with my kids and of course I'm ambitious and I love what I do but it's actually enough for me. <laughs> I'm not like yeah. desperately seeking beyond. I'm I'm just like happy where I'm at, really. I don't have big grand plans to like take over the world or do anything further, which sounds a Damn bit- Damn it. I mean, <laughs> you'd be a great leader. <laughs> but it's, I mean, I have political ambitions. I'm doing some political lobbying and campaigning, but that's kind of like a vol voluntary-based stuff. Um, but sometimes it sounds a bit like unaspirational, just saying, oh, I'm really happy doing no, what I'm doing. I don't think that. I think it really redefines success. And I think that our concept of success is so blurry. We really see success as solely being the monetary value that you bring to the world. And I actually think that a lot of people, particularly after COVID, are redefining success. Success yeah. can be just having amazing relationships. Success is getting up in the morning and feeling healthy. Success yeah. is going to bed and being happy. You know, it doesn't always have to be, I'm striving for more. I'm striving for more. And I think that's actually a really beautiful way to end, you know, like just take a deep breath and be, be happy with what you've got. <laughs> Yeah, like I don't want any more. Like it's just that's it. Yeah. Perfection. <laughs> Katie, thank you so, so much. This has just been the best chat and um I feel very inspired after having spoken to you. So I'm really grateful for your time. Um and yeah, I look forward to seeing what you've got coming up. Ah, oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been really lovely. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group